If you ever travel to the island of Guam, I would recommend you check out a tourist attraction known as Yokoi's Cave. It's a small underground cave. It's actually been rebuilt. The original was destroyed in a typhoon. It was named after the Japanese soldier who hid there for a long time at the end of World War II until he surrendered. His two fellow soldiers, having died in that cave long before he surrendered. As many of you may recall, the official date for the end of World War II is August 14, 1945, even though Japan did not formally surrender until September 2nd. August 14th, perhaps most of us remember more clearly, the year 1945. We have since learned that Japanese soldiers were trained to believe that it was better to die or even to be captured than to surrender, a belief held by Yokoi Shoichi, who was conscripted, fancy word for forced enlistment, into the Japanese army in 1941. He was actually a tailor by trade, and once he joined the army, he worked his way up to sergeant and was a soldier in the Japanese forces that were stationed in Guam. It was there that he decided to hide when American troops, under the command of the famous General Douglas MacArthur, conquered the island just three years after he joined the army in the summer of 1944. At that time, Yokoi was part of a group of ten men. They fled when the U.S. troops came, and they hid in the jungle, knowing that it would be easier to hide and survive and not be caught in smaller numbers, Yokoi and two others broke off from the group and dug that tunnel. They actually spent three months building this cave. It was three feet high and nine feet long, where he lived for a long time, staying there throughout the day, coming out only at night to catch fish, frogs, snakes, rats, and eels for food. Actually, after he was discovered, he, one of his most prized possessions was a homemade eel trap that he had made. He did this until he was discovered by some fishermen in Guam who caught him and turned him into the authorities in 1972. For 28 years, This man hid in this cave thinking the war was still going on. He had heard in the 50s that the war was over, but they thought maybe it was a trap, and so they kept hiding. Before turning him in, the fisherman gave him his first real meal in almost 30 years, and two weeks later, he returned to Japan as a hero with these famous words, feel free to chuckle, It is with much embarrassment, but I have returned. Much embarrassment, to say the least. 30 years. Because he thought the war was still going on. Because of one simple, incorrect belief that the war never ended, this man's life was essentially ruined. Living in the wilderness when he could have been sleeping in a warm bed barely surviving on rats and snakes when he could have been feasting on ramen and sushi. Living in fear 
and hiding when he should have been living in freedom and acclaim. Yes, a simple, incorrect belief, but substantial, a world war, and foundational to his life. It is the same sort of misguided thinking that Paul addresses when it comes to the incorrect belief that believers will never be resurrected in bodily form. A misguided idea that, as with Yokoi Shoichi, will ruin someone's life even more drastically than believing in an ongoing war ruined his. This morning, we continue our study of the resurrection, and we finally come to the meat of the issue, the actual topic at hand, the wrong thinking about the resurrection, not Christ's resurrection, but believers' bodily resurrection that was held by some within the ancient Corinthian church. Our passage for this morning and next week is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Turn with me if you haven't already, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. I'm going to read the whole passage. We will get through half of it this morning. Now, if Christ is preached that he has never been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Excuse me. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So much here that tells us about the significance of the resurrection. I would submit to you this morning that a lot that you have perhaps not even thought about because we know the resurrection is true. And perhaps we take that for granted at times. Before we get into our outline this morning, which starts in verse 13, I want to look at verse 12 by way of introduction. Verse 12 lays for us a foundation for what we're going to look at for the rest of our time this morning and next Sunday. In verse 12, Paul addresses the wrong thinking about bodily bodily resurrection among some of the Corinthians. We must be clear that Paul has addressed them already in this passage in this chapter, in this book, as believers, which means they believe in and accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not what they're questioning. You can't be a believer if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. What they don't believe in is the resurrection of other people. This is why Paul is so astonished that they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead because they already accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, how do some of you say this? It's an expression of astonishment. 
He's saying if you believe in the preaching of the resurrection of Christ, how in the world do you deny the resurrection of others, the resurrection of the dead? The one leads to the other. The one makes the other possible. And if the promises of Scripture that Jesus was raised from the dead are true, then the promises of Scripture that we will be raised from the dead are also true. Because indeed, the Bible teaches and promises both. We know that it's not all the Corinthian believers who are denying the doctrine of the Christian resurrection. He says, some among you are saying this, believe this. But among those few, where did this belief come from? If they have indeed been taught the Scriptures, why do they believe that Jesus was risen, but we will not be? We aren't told exactly who infiltrated the church, who affected their thinking. Perhaps it came from their pre-Christian understanding or beliefs about eternity and the future. But we do have historical context that may give us some clues. There are several options here. We know that at this time, pagan Greek philosophy was uh, very prominent, and they had a dualistic view of man. And what that simply means is that anything physical is evil and anything spiritual is good. And so at death, we are freed from the evil of the physical body and the good part of us lives on. And if this is the case, you can see why they would say, why would there be a resurrection? If the good in us is freed at the death of our physical bodies, why would you want that physical evil body to come back? That's a dualism view of pagan philosophy, Greek philosophy. You're familiar from Matthew 22, which both these people and their views of the resurrection are mentioned. There is a group, a significant group within Judaism at this time that Jesus confronts and addresses several times named the Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Perhaps some of them were part of the Sadducees before they were saved, influenced by them. This was a a much more prominent religion than it is, for example, in America today. You understand this. There are other options. There were also many other religions and religious beliefs during that time that had various views of what happens after death, which incidentally, many of these views are still believed today, some even by Christians. One view was soul sleep. The body dies, but the soul rests eternally. There was the belief that there was total extinction of the body and the soul. It's known as annihilationism in Christian circles where it refers only to unbelievers That view today is that they will be in hell only temporarily and then everything will cease to exist. Uh, There is a a scholar, uh, a poet, and a classicist who actually is responsible for the translation of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey that most of us probably read, the version we read in English. And he did an extensive study of tombstones of that day. And he said during this time, uh, there was very almost no indication that there was a belief in the afterlife. And so we know this was a prominent belief at that time that when you die, everything just ceases to exist. This is held by many in our world today. And then, of course, as some religions 
uh, believe and propagate today. Back then, there were some who believed in reincarnation, which would involve resurrect would not involve resurrection. Rather, since your soul would be reborn into another person or animal, whereas what the Bible teaches in our resurrection is that it is our bodies, sinless, glorified, but still us, not another animal or a plant or something else as resurrection might, or reincarnation rather, would teach. Regardless of the source of this wrong thinking among the Corinthian believers, what we do know is that it was there. They were denying human resurrection. Bottom line, a major problem for Paul is this. If Christ is risen, then others can be raised. Or to put it negatively and in the form that Paul will address for us this morning, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then what? Well, that brings us to our outline for this morning. Eight rational repercussions of a rejected resurrection. Eight rational repercussions of a rejected resurrection. In other words, if resurrection is indeed not real, then these are the eight logical results. They are rational, they are logical, because you don't have to twist anything to come to these conclusions, because the Scriptures are clear on this issue. And what that means on the flip side is that they give us great substance as believers for which to be thankful when we appreciate and understand that the resurrection is indeed real, not only our resurrection, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eight rational repercussions of a rejected resurrection. And these might feel uncomfortable to you, but understand they're all hypothetical. And I'll be honest with you, I'm telling you like it is. But it's uncomfortable even for me to say some of these phrases, but praise God, none of them are true. And you'll see with the first one, our first repercussion, Jesus is dead. Look at verse 13 again. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. This first point forms the basis of our remaining seven repercussions. We've talked about this much already. The two resurrections, Christ's and that of believers, are connected. You cannot have one without the other. And why do I say that Jesus would be dead? Because we know that he died as a man, and as we saw in verse 3 and 4 of this chapter, was buried as a dead human corpse, thus validating and verifying his physical death. It was in the resurrection from this deceased state that he was made alive again. Physical human death, resurrection, alive again. And Paul says it right here with his phrasing, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ, who was dead, has been raised, which would make him still dead. You see, what he is saying is, if you believe there's no resurrection of believers, 
Christ was not raised. He's not saying Christ wasn't raised on the third day. He was raised later. He's saying he was never raised at all. He's still dead. In fact, for us, long gone, disintegrated, dust to dust. This is the essence of the problem that Paul is addressing. Because Christ is the one who makes all resurrections possible. And we'll see this later on in chapter 15. He's the first fruits. He's the first one. He is the initiator. So if we are not resurrected, then it's because He was not resurrected. The logic is simple. You cannot make or have or believe a universal blanket statement while at the same time believing something that contradicts that statement. As such, you cannot believe there's no resurrection while believing that Jesus was raised. It doesn't make sense. It's all or nothing. And Paul flips this logic and says that because you believe that there is no resurrection of the dead, then you must also believe that Christ has not been raised. Now, they don't believe that. They believe Christ has been raised. He's making a point. But if you believe, even if it's secondarily because of your main belief that the dead are not raised, you secondarily have to believe that Christ was not raised, you then knock out a central tenet of the Christian faith. As we saw in verse 3, when we looked at the gospel, which you don't even need to refer to, don't even flip back there, because you know the gospel includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And assuming the hypothetical that Christ has not been raised from the dead allows Paul to continue with the terrifying results that follow. We have seven more to be exact. Let's take a look. We're looking at eight rational repercussions of a rejected resurrection. The first is Jesus is dead. The second, preaching is baseless. Preaching is baseless. Look at verse 14a, or the first half of verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The word vain, he uses here twice, and he uses it back in verse 10. All three times is the same Greek word. It means empty, without content, nothingness, absolute void, without basis, fruitless, void of effect, to no purpose. You get the point. It's pretty scary to think that he's using the word vain to describe gospel preaching. It's even scarier to see that he uses it about Christian faith. First, he mentions preaching. This, is, of course, is the preaching of the gospel, biblical truth, primarily known at this time as the ministry of the apostles. And quite simply, he says, if the Corinthians are right, then Paul and the apostles are wrong. Again, this is logical. He uses the word then. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The word means it follows that. It's a logical conclusion. Put it all together. He's saying if Christ has not been raised, it follows that. It is logical to conclude that our preaching is empty, worthless, baseless. Why? Because their preaching... My preaching, your preaching, are all founded upon a risen Savior. 
take out that foundation and your preaching has no substance. It is baseless. It has no value. No true content. It's a sham. It's a joke. Because we would all agree, wouldn't we? How silly to preach about a dead man who never came out of that grave. How foolish to tell me to worship a bag of bones 2,000 years old. Silly. But you know what would be even sillier than that to preach that? To put your faith in a rotting corpse. And that leads us to our third rational repercussion. Faith is worthless. Faith is worthless. Second part of verse 14, he says, Your faith also is vain. If the preaching has no substance, then neither does the faith placed in the message of that preaching. Both are empty. Both are worthless. In other words, if the gospel message is a lie, then obviously a life based on the content of that message is a lie. He reiterates the significance of denying the resurrection as it pertains to faith in verse 17. He says, your faith is worthless. Think about your life since you've been saved. Think about your life even this morning. If we will not be raised one day, if the Christians who have already died in Christ will not be raised one day, don't mean go to heaven in spiritual form, but physically raised, then Jesus was not physically raised because all of that is crucial to the resurrection of Christ too, right? Not that He just emerged, His body was still in the grave, He emerged as spirit. That's not what the gospel is. That doesn't prove anything. Conquering death, conquering sin, because that's still, well, He failed, right? And so now as God, very God, He's just going to go into heaven in spiritual form. That would be useless as well. And so if none of that is true, think about your life. You claim that your life has changed. You're wrong. It's a hoax. You've convinced yourself. It's all emotional as you sing. It's all bogus. You felt something, you changed something. Well, that wasn't God because He's dead. That was you just being a good moral person, trying your best to be at least. It's a hoax. Because what you believed was not good news, it was a lie, which makes your life bad news, which makes your life, since that moment that you prayed that prayer, a lie. Every argument you've had about your faith was useless. Every relationship broken because you are a believer. Should have listened to that guy. Think about it. Every time you've said, praise God, 
Perhaps even this morning. Some of you did this morning. You thought something was wrong. You couldn't find your keys. You found them. Oh, praise God, we're going to make it to church. You got that raise. You got married. You survived COVID. Oh, but by the grace of God, nope. Not true. None of it true. You might as well take the Lord's name in vain because it's the same thing. Your faith is in someone who no longer exists. Someone who died and stayed dead 2,000 years ago. Just pick any historical figure then. You might as well be worshiping Julius Caesar. Every minute of every church service, every second of prayer, every cent of giving, no different than those who do the same thing to Buddha. If there is no resurrection. Don't even get me started on those poor suckers listed in Hebrews 11. By faith, by faith, by faith. Their faith was vain. You died for nothing. You sacrificed for nothing. Faith in what? A fairy tale told by a bunch of lying apostles. But we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. So we can trust not only the preaching of the apostles, but the whole of the Bible, which means our faith is in a living God. Rejoice in the grace that has allowed you to hear the gospel. Give thanks for the sanctification through the study of His Word and the continued preaching of it. Understand, too, that as scary as it is to think that you'd be praying to, serving, and giving to a dead God, understand that there are millions in our world and hundreds in your neighborhood who are doing that this very minute. Praying to a dead man or a non-existent God. Entire nations in our world based on these false religions. Some worshiping someone who couldn't die because they never even existed. Created in the minds of man. But before you go and say, you know what? You're right. I need to go and evangelize these people. They're lost. Because that hypothetical is scary for me. And yet people are living it. But before you go out there, you need to start in here. Our confidence in a living God must result in gratitude and joy. Praise God that your faith is not worthless. It is redemptive. It's not just, oh, I bought this thing. I think it's broken. Oh, it actually works. No, it is redemptive. It's not just good, it's life-changing, it is eternal. Thank God you heard and hear preaching that is not baseless, but it changed your life and continues to change your life. Praise God, we can say that. By the grace of God, we can say that. And it's true. But the conviction still stands. Our confidence in a living God and the subsequent joy of our faith must be taken to the lost. 
Maybe you're not as uncomfortable as I said you might be. But to think that we are worshiping a false god, an idol, and to say, good thing he was raised from the dead, good thing will be raised from the dead, and then to ignore those who worship in a temple, to ignore the family members of those who are now in hell because they thought they would be rewarded with multiple women in heaven if they were to help start a war and kill thousands of Americans. They're blinded. They don't know any better. This is what they were raised to believe. Perhaps out of threat of death and beheading, but they believe it nonetheless. We can't ignore them. We can't say, you know what? I'm not equipped to address the Muslim. I don't know enough scripture to counter the Buddhist. I don't know what they believe. Let me study it. Pastor, do you have a book that explains their beliefs and what verses to address? You don't need to know what they believe. All you need to know is what you believe. Well, there's a lot and sometimes two verses, we saw it a few weeks ago. That's what you believe. That's all they need to believe to be saved. There is a resurrection. And don't just sit there saying, yes, I know, that's why I'm here. Do something about it. Worship, repent, give glory, give thanks. Go back to what we talked about last week. It's all grace. Don't get cocky. Don't think you're better. Don't pat yourself on the back. Just look to God and say, thank you for your grace. And if His grace can bring you here, I know it can be scary. I know it can be challenging. I know your hands can get clammy, but He will give you the grace to speak to those people. But again, if you don't truly appreciate the resurrection and what you have in Christ because He is alive, then of course that's going to fail. You guys get that? You've been to school. You work. If your heart's not in the studies, if you don't want to do well at your job, if you dislike it, if you dislike your coworkers, if you don't even believe that you should be in that field, you don't do very well, do you? And if you do, you're exhausted. You're bitter. You're angry. It's the same thing with appreciating and understanding the resurrection and praise God that God, through Paul, speaks so clearly of horrifying repercussions if the resurrection did not happen. Speaking of which, let's look at a final one for this morning. Our fourth rational repercussion of rejected resurrection is preachers are liars. We've seen Jesus is dead. 
preaching is baseless, faith is worthless, and now preachers are liars. 15a, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Not only is preaching baseless and vain, empty, as we saw earlier, having no eternal impact or even temporal impact in this life, true temporal impact, Paul goes a step further and says it's a lie. We know what a lie is, and one kind of lie is saying something happened that didn't really happen. Yes, Daddy, I did my homework. Yes, honey, I went out looking for a job. You're saying something happened that didn't happen. It is a lie. And if Christ was not resurrected, then preaching the gospel as we know it is adding something that didn't really happen. Well-intentioned, perhaps, but a lie nonetheless. And suddenly, the apostles, the apostles, and all ministers from that point on are not merely preaching an empty message. They're actually lying to us. I'm lying to you. Paul says we are found to be false witnesses of God. Liars. The word found is a word that means exposed, discovered to be. It's often used of moral judgments regarding someone's character, and it has the idea of discovering or detecting that character. What is it that the apostles were discovered to be? False witnesses. Or if you have the ESV, misrepresenting God. But it gets worse. They're not just false witnesses as a general character trait. They are specifically lying about God. Misrepresenting God. Fine, you you told a lie about your teacher. You told a lie about one of your friends. One of the the people that you're looking at on, on YouTube. Okay, kids, you get some discipline. Don't do that again. But you lie about God. Don't you dare ever do that again. My boys know that. Taking the Lord's name in vain bears greater punishment in our home than even four-letter words, which we despise. Because it's a misrepresentation and slander of God. And that's what Paul is saying that they've been doing all along if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ wasn't raised, and thus they have taken God's message, and they've added something to it, thereby making it a myth, a fabrication, a human story based on human desires. All the while doing so, and this is just the rotten icing on the gross cake, they do this in the name of God. And then they pass off this lie as the Word of God. Naturally, we now have to question everything the apostles said or did. This is something we've explained to our kids. Well, I've never lied before, but now we don't know. And all it takes is one lie for us to say, we got to be on our, our guard now. You may not be a habitual liar, But that one lie made you a liar. And so now we got to go back and say, did this really happen? Is this really happening? 
And it's the same thing here. If the resurrection didn't happen and they said it happened, especially doing so in the name of God, leading masses, planting churches based on this lie, we have to question everything. Should your name even be Paul? Did that even happen on the road to Damascus? How do we know now? If you're going to lie about something this big, what else about God that you have led us to believe is not true? What else about His character have you falsified? What else have you been lying about? Now we understand that Paul is still speaking hypothetically because Christ was raised from the dead, but here we have yet another reminder of the significance of the resurrection of the dead because it implicates the resurrection of Christ. But we know we can trust Him because what He has taught is corroborated throughout the Scriptures, including eyewitness testimony, God's own Son, or God the Son rather, His own declarations about Himself, as well as the prophecies of the Old Testament that came long before the apostles did. And again, what a powerful reminder of the overall witness of testimony. In hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for the the science behind or the principles of studying the Bible and Bible interpretation, yes, there are rules that I must follow in interpreting the Scriptures. So in the study of hermeneutics, we call this principle analogy of the faith. And what analogy of the faith says is something that you believe but perhaps have never put it this way is that there is one unified, consistent, harmonious system of faith in the Bible. One. One unified, consistent, harmonious system of faith in the Bible. In other words, and you've probably heard it more often this way, no point of Scripture, so no verse, no word, no passage, no idea, no doctrine, no point of Scripture, when properly understood, will contradict any other point of Scripture. And you've heard people do this before, right? They say, well, see, the Bible's not true because this says this, and then you're like, you are taking that wildly out of context. May I do that with you? Because if I do, then I can just piece together your words and say that the Bible is absolutely true, according to you, Mr. Atheist, right? So you know this, you understand this, that no point of Scripture contradicts any other point of Scripture, when understood properly, which is not some sort of theological or mental gymnastics, it's simply reading it in its context. Clearly, the resurrection is a core belief. But all that's happening here is a few people in the church don't believe in it. And again, it's not even the resurrection of Christ that they're denying, but as we've seen, they're all connected. Resurrection and resurrection connected, yes, but everything in Scripture is connected. Friends, this is a profound wake-up call for our questioning of any point of Scripture. It's like that net they sometimes have in children's playgrounds. You ever seen this? It's shaped like a spider's web. Sometimes call it the spider web. Some poles, and then there's a net thrown around it. And so people climb on it. Kids climb on it. There may be, they may be on one knot right by the pole. They may just be on one little section, one little strand. 
But no matter how gently they move, no matter how much they're bracing on that immovable pole, it will shake the entire net. Even the kid on the furthest opposite edge on that knot will feel that someone walked on over here. That's how the Scriptures work. Just as the disbelief in the believer's resurrection is the same as rejecting the Lord's resurrection, so we must be careful of the interwoven doctrines that are arguably lesser, but still connected to the integrity and believability of the whole. Don't believe this. It's going to shake that. How are they connected? Through the character of God. This is not an outrageous principle. Scientists, you understand this. Engineers, you understand this. Computer scientists, how many times have you gone back and the new guy, the, the software is not working, and you go back and you, you figure out that he mistyped one piece of code? The guy's like, oh, I didn't even look there because I just figured it, it had nothing to do with the end result or the big issue that we're having. It's all connected. Everything in your life is connected. Someone can't say, hey, let's go out and do this and say, well, you know, your kids are at school, so act like you don't have kids. That you can't do that. Every aspect of your life is connected. Why? Well, I can't do that because I need to be around. I need to pick up my kids. I need to be there. I can't just fly to Hawaii for a week because my kids are in school for five hours, right? Everything's connected. Everything in your body is connected. You ever had something hurt and the doctor's like, yeah, there's something wrong with your foot. Like, well, then why is there a ringing in my ears? It's all connected. It's all connected, right? Well, no, I'm, I'm eating well, I'm exercising, you know, I'm getting to work on time, and so I don't see why sleeping one hour a night is going to affect anything. Right? You laugh because it's all connected. How much more the Scriptures, because it's not just a bunch of people giving their opinions, it's all interwoven and interconnected because it is the same God who gave it to us. Never changing, never altering, Never confused makes zero mistakes. We need to be careful. But back to the point. Eight rational repercussions of a rejected resurrection. We'll look at the other four next week, but we've seen that Jesus is dead, preaching is baseless, faith is worthless, and preachers are liars. Now, if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that our faith is not vain. 
apostolic or any gospel preaching is not vain. That those who have and will and do preach the gospel are not liars. But all because, and most importantly, you are not dead. We praise you that all of these things are just hypothetical. And I pray that it would give us motivation and substance to praise you, to glorify you, to not take the gospel for granted, whether in our own lives or in our evangelism. Motivate us, Lord, to be the kind of people you want us to be because we, out of all the thousands of religions that have ever existed, are the ones who are truly worshiping a living God. Thank you, Lord. And so many practical ramifications that we haven't even looked at that even now we know you here because you're alive. And you can do something about our prayers because you are alive. That we can worship you. That we can have comfort. We can have eternal security. We can know that you are there and will be there and will welcome us with open arms. And that we will one day in our physical but glorified bodies worship you for an eternity. Help us to understand this in the busyness of life. And may we live in response to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close in song.